Hey, Menlo family, we're going to get to hear from Scott Dudley, who is a former pastor here at Menlo Church and now lead pastor of a church up in Bellevue, Washington. And before you hear from him, we thought it'd be fun uh, for you to see some of the guys that he was able to impact when he was at Menlo and even to hear how Menlo impacted him and these guys as well. And so we had a little conversation with uh, Scott Dudley, Scotty Scruggs, who is a lead pastor now in Kirkland, Washington, and Brian Dunnigan, who is a lead pastor in Dallas, Texas. And we want to start with you hearing from Brian and then from Scotty and the ways that uh, Scott Dudley impacted them. And then Scott Dudley is going to share a little bit about how men impacted him. So let's jump into the conversation now. It's just been reflecting about, reflecting on uh, the years that we had together, Scott. And um, I feel like what I learned from you really beginning as a freshman, that fall quarter um, at Stanford, you invited me to coffee um, at eight o'clock in the morning on a Friday, which no college student ever gets up at eight o'clock in the morning. But we sort of carried that on for four, the four years. And, and um, yeah, those conversations were life changing. And I feel like just the idea that you, there, are no, there are no shortcuts in walking alongside somebody as they come to know Jesus. And the time that you were willing to spend and the conversations, the questions you asked, and um, really going through some challenges in my own personal life and my family with marriage problems, money problems, addiction problems, and uh, your willingness to sort of enter into the trenches and just walk with me through that uh, changed everything for me. It's hard for me to put into words the impact that Menlo Church has had. I mean, obviously, as I said, I really discovered the church through Scott. And in those early years, I really, um, I knew him. I was impacted by that ministry. But what I began to realize is there was this 150-year-old community movement uh, behind him that really reflected that same DNA, Jesus-centered and grace-oriented and others-focused and Uh, mission-minded and down-to-earth but thoughtful and um, this great legacy of names that go generations back and uh, you know I spent uh, years as an intern there in fact God's the call I felt to ministry happened I was speaking at the student ministry camp one summer and I just I I have had one or two kind of audible voice moments Um, it was like midway through a message I was giving I don't think it was a very good message but God still spoke to me in that moment and said this is what you're going to do and then after seminary, I came back to Menlo thinking I would stay for two or three years just to kind of get a sense of where God was calling me next. I stayed for 12. Mm. And um, those years are not just formative. Um, they were transformative. Um, they're, they're the years that God made me who I am. Mm. And I met my wife, Nina, there. And we kind of discovered this call to ministry where we are in Seattle now um, at Menlo. And we still lead in some ways from that same legacy of being that same kind of community, um, wanting to reach people uh, for Christ in a way that uh, that so many churches just, um, for whatever reason, um, don't do, but Menlo just does so well. It's just somehow God's ordained it, anointed it in that way. I love the picture of discipleship, not just being a program, but really life's together. And you guys continuing those relationships even after you left Menlo Church. I love that that discipleship is names of people. Yes, it's mm-hmm. names of people. It's when nice. I think of my time at Menlo, 
-hmm. and how I was discipled there, I think of names. I think of Bill and Sally Russ, Mm -hmm. who taught me how to pray, Mm -hmm. really pray. And were the first people in my life, I'd been to seminary and all kinds of stuff, but the first people in my life to say, and God speaks back Mm. and you can listen. And so I think of Bill and Sally Russ. I think of John James, Mm. who took me to breakfast every Saturday morning. And, you know, World War II vet poured into me, discipled me. Um, I think of people like that. I think of names. Mm-hmm. So there's there's generational um, lines here, and I think I I came to the Bay Area to get a PhD to be a professor. Um, I think the real reason I came to the Bay Area is because there was a man God wanted me to meet named Walker Gerber, and it was really Walt who helped me took an interest in me, helped me discover my call into ministry. It's more of an apprenticeship model where you absorb a DNA from a church. And if you are in a good church with good DNA, not perfect, there's no perfect church. But if you're in a good church that has good DNA and you absorb that, you're going to be a good pastor because you've caught it. Um, And I think Menlo, so much of my leadership, I just instinctively go in certain directions. And it's because of what I absorbed uh, at Menlo, the DNA that's just in me. And I don't even think about it sometimes. It's just in me. And I think Menlo's done that for a lot. It's not just, it's not just the three of us. It, it, you know, if you look at Scott Farmer and Dan Chun, and I mean, there's just this long, long list of people who have had significant ministry because they spent time at Menlo. And now they're all over the country. And so Menlo's legacy is, is very wide. And then, you know, even generationally, as Scotty and Brian influence people, there'll be more people who are leaders in ministry, whether that's in a church or in business. And so all of that is the DNA that keeps getting passed down generation to generation to generation. Hello, Menlo Church. Uh, it is just so, so good to be here. And I want to also say hello to those of you who are online and in the other campuses. Uh, it is just so great uh, to be here. Um, I, if many, some people don't know me. I was here a long time ago. My name is Scott. I was the college pastor here a long time ago. I was briefly the teaching pastor. Um, and and it just, it is, I've been looking forward to this all summer because it's just such a treat to be able to, to be here. As I said in that video, uh, this church changed my life. My life, the way, when I tell the story of my life, I say it all divides very clearly of everything before Menlo Church and everything after Menlo Church. And every good thing I have in my life right now, my family, my wife, my career, my friends, all of it is because of the time I spent here at Menlo. And it was the turning point in my entire life, the hinge upon which my entire life uh, has been swinging ever since. And I mean, we, my wife and I are so grateful for this church. This church is in our will. Um, we're never going to take it out of our will because my wife and I are just so deeply, deeply grateful for what so many of you did. Um, and that was 20 years ago. It's, it's a long time ago, but uh, it's, still, it's, it's still with me. So it's just so good to be here again and see all of you. Um, the scripture, yeah, thank you. It's just so good. 
scripture I'm going to be preaching from is uh, Mark chapter 10. And it says, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, well, let one of us sit on your right and the other on your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup that I drink from and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We can, they answered. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. And then Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Holy Spirit, in these next few minutes, use what I'm going to say, what we're going to think, to help us understand this passage and follow you more. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, there's a man named Will Willimon who was chaplain at Duke University, and he tells a story of getting a phone call one time from an angry dad. And because the, this dad's daughter was graduating and the dad, in the dad's words, was about to waste her degree by doing humanitarian work in Haiti. And he said to Will Willimon, and I blame you. It's your fault. You filled her head with all this religion nonsense. And then Willimon said, well, did you have her baptized? And the dad said, yes. And Willimon said, and did you take her to Sunday school? And the dad said, yes. And did she go to youth group? And the dad said, yes, but what's this got to do with anything? And Willimon said, well, it's your fault she's going to go dig wells in Haiti because you introduced her to Jesus. And the dad said, yes, but we just wanted a Presbyterian. (laughs) And I think that's how myself, how I sometimes uh, kind of feel, and I think sometimes how a lot of people, Christians, feel, I want to follow Jesus up to a point. I want Jesus to help me with my life plan. I want him to, to help me help fix my problems. I want Jesus to inspire me spiritually, but don't ask too much of me, Jesus. And the problem with that is when we have that sort of consumer approach to Jesus, Jesus' vending machine, we miss out on the power and the healing and the transformation that Jesus wants to do in our life. And we miss the bigger life, the harder life, just to be honest, it's a harder life, but the bigger life, richer, deeper life that Jesus wants to give us if we become all-in followers of Jesus. If we get in the game and follow him with everything we've got, not just up to a point, but with everything we've got. I think a lot of American Christians ask the question, if Jesus is so amazing, then where is this exceedingly abundantly beyond all I can ask or even imagine that I keep hearing about in church? Because frankly, what I got going on in my own life, I could sort of imagine on my own. And I think that's because we're only willing to follow Jesus up to a point. We say, Jesus, I want you to free me from my money worries, but not if it means I have to give some of it away and see that you provide. Jesus, I want you to free me from this bad habit, but not if it means giving it up. Jesus, I want you to fix my marriage, but not if it means treating my spouse differently, because see, Jesus, I was rather hoping that you would change them, because I'm just fine. They're the problem. 
A lot of people want Jesus to give them a life-changing experience without actually changing the way they live. And that was what we see in today's uh, scripture. Two of Jesus' disciples come up to him and they say, we want you to do whatever we ask you to do. <laughs> like, isn't that great? Like the primordial prayer, right? Like, Jesus, here's what I want. Do, do what I want you to do. And this, unfortunately, it sounds like my prayer sometimes. Jesus, fix this, fix that. Heal me, bless me, help me, inspire me. Give me the American Trinity, pleasure, comfort, and success. The prayers we pray are a good indication of our real priorities. And there's, there's nothing with praying for ourselves. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with saying, hey, Jesus, here's what I want. But if that's all we do, we're going to miss out on the bigger life that Jesus has to offer us. So Jesus says to the disciples, well, what do you want? And they say, let one of us sit on your right and the other at your left in your glory. See, they think Jesus is going to be a military hero who drives out the Roman Empire and becomes king. And the positions on the left and on the right of a throne, those were the two most important positions other than the king in the kingdom. So basically they're saying, Jesus, would you please make us your vice messiahs? Like give us a good cabinet appointment when you become king. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup that I drink? And they say, we can. No, they can't. No, they can't. Because Jesus explained just one verse earlier, just one verse earlier, Jesus has explained what this cup is going to mean for him. He said, the son of man, that's Jesus, will be delivered to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. He says that. And the very next verse, the disciples say, we want you to do whatever we ask. Like the degree of not getting it is off the charts here. Like the degree of cluelessness is like awe-inspiring how far off they are. Especially since Jesus has repeatedly said over and over again, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Well, nobody likes that kind of talk, Jesus. That's not going to fill the pews. I don't want to deny myself. I don't want to, I, I, I want you to do whatever I ask. Jesus, make me happy. Isn't that your job, Jesus, to make me happy? But don't miss this other part of the verse here. Because he says, yeah, yeah, I'm going to be killed. I'm going to die. But then I will be raised from the dead. When we kill our addiction to self, and I am addicted to myself, but when we start to kill, crucify that addiction to self, we are reborn into a bigger life, free from shame, free from guilt, free from the pressure of having to prove ourselves worthy all the time through our good deeds or, 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 or through accomplishments and achievements. And then we are freed for a life of meaningful connection to God and meaningful relationships and courage and purpose and joy. Jesus' most frequent promise the one he makes the most often in the Gospels is not, I will be with you always, or you know, I'll never leave you or forsake you. He makes that promise. But his most frequent promise, the one he makes more than any other, is whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life, for me in the Gospel, will save it. He says it in six different places. It's the only thing he says in all four Gospels. If you lose your life, you'll find it. <clears throat> True joy. 
True courage, true, f- true freedom is found not in having everything we want, the job we want, the car we want, the friends we want, the reputation we want. True joy is not found in having everything we want. It's found in, in, in fully following Jesus and experiencing close connection to him and being on mission with him to heal the world. See, here's the thing. Jesus offers so much more than what we ask him for. He offers so much more than the consumer Christianity that says, Jesus, fix my problems and help me with my career and do this and do that. Because see, biblically speaking, Jesus' job is not to make me happy. Jesus doesn't care if I'm happy. Jesus doesn't care if you're happy. He cares that we're holy and that we're whole and that we're becoming more like him and that we're getting closer to him. And he wants to give us meaning and purpose and joy. And joy is different than happy. Because, see, happiness is based on your happenings. And if your happenings aren't happening to happen the way you want them to happen, then you're not happy. But joy is grounded in a connection with Jesus, and it can't be taken away by any circumstances, by any of the happenings in your life. And joy comes from being closely related to Jesus and being on mission with him to heal the world. Not just consumer Christianity where we say, give me what I want, Jesus, but really closely following him and being on mission together to heal the world. We're being in the game in the theme of this sermon series, getting in the game and following him to change people by serving them, as he says here. This text, the disciples ask Jesus to do what they want to do, and then he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Not so you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In other words, real greatness, real wholeness, real joy is in radical servanthood, serving others, which Jesus does by dying on a cross to pay the price for our sins, to reconcile us to God. Even Jesus serves. And the the disciples asked to sit on Jesus' right and on his left, but instead Jesus was crucified with a thief on his right and a thief on his left. Because, see, the disciples' request, it 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 wasn't too big, it was too small. They were asking for too little. Jesus wants to give them more. They just wanted, you know, they just wanted, hey, give us power and status and money and prestige and reputation. All the same things that the Romans wanted. It's just that they wanted it instead of the Romans. But that's still, that rotten system is still in place. Jesus doesn't want to, Jesus wants to change the whole rotten system where that's how we're measured instead of just rearranging the seating chart. Jesus wants to give us so much more. Our prayers are too small. Jesus, help me be popular at school or at work or with my friends or in my church. And Jesus says, how about we get rid of this whole system where some people are better liked than other people? Are you with me? Do you want to help me do that? Are you in? Jesus, help me get this promotion at work. And Jesus says, how about I free you from the need for that promotion to feel secure or to feel important or to feel like you matter? Are you in? Will you help me? Will you cooperate with me in that? Jesus, heal me from this disease. And Jesus says, how about I make you unafraid of death because you know that being in my presence is the greatest thing there is and nothing on earth compares to it. Our prayers are too small. So Jesus calls us up and he calls us out and he calls us to something much, much higher, 
a life, a bigger life of justice and meaning and purpose and hope and joy. And Jesus says, are you in? Are you all in? Do you want to go for that? You want me to give you that? Are you in? And I said, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in, until it gets hard. And I'm like, I don't know, Jesus, Netflix looks kind of good tonight. I don't, I don't know about being in the game and being all in. So then how do we do this? Because I think we sort of want to do this, but then, you know, when it gets hard, we don't want to do it. So how? How do we break free of this consumer Christian thing, which is just all over the American church, right? Jesus' job is to bless me and make me happy and all that. How do we break free from that to follow Jesus with everything we've got, not just up to a point, so that we experience that bigger, richer, deeper life, harder life, but bigger, richer, deeper life that he wants to give us? Well, first, just start by wanting more. Just want more. Like the disciples here, their prayers are too small. Want more than just, Jesus, do what I, what I ask you to do. And if you don't want the bigger life that Jesus gives you, if you don't want more, then at least every day this week, pray, Jesus, help me want to want more. Help me want to want that harder, but bigger, richer, deeper life that comes from being all in, in the game with you, following you and serving others in your name. If you don't want it, at least pray the prayer, Lord, help me to want to want it. Because this is not about you ought to and you should and you better or God's going to be mad. It's not about guilt and obligation and shame. No, no. It's not obligation. It's an invitation to the bigger life Jesus wants to give you. When our kids were toddlers, one of the pieces of advice that we, we got about parenting was to give them choices rather than to give them sort of commands. So it's, you know, it's called love and logic. And you know, it was all about giving them choices. So we'd say things like, the problem was my son could see right through it. Like we did not fool him, even at three years old. So we'd say things like, do you want to put your coat on or would you like us to put your coat on for you? And he would say, that's not a choice. No coat, that's what I want. <laughs> And so very often, our parenting went from love and logic to the true essence of parenting, which is threats and bribes. <laughs> you better put that coat on or else. God does not treat us that way. God does not threaten us or bribe us. It's always an invitation. Hey, this life of following me with everything you've got and serving others, it's harder, but it's bigger, richer, deeper, better. It's an invitation. Ask God to help you want that. Just want more than what we want. We are far too easily pleased. God wants to give us something much bigger. Second, you got to get closer to Jesus through what I call the big four. You know, prayer. And not just, Jesus, here's what I want. Please give it to me. You know, but prayer where we leave space for those thoughts that maybe aren't our thoughts, that maybe come from God. That's Jesus talking to us. Prayer. And worship where we can experience God together in community. And scripture, where we get God's words in our heads, and community. Because it's, out, again, this is not ought, should, obligation. It's out of a closeness to Jesus. The more we feel connected to Jesus, we feel grateful for all that he's given us. And we want to follow him, not just a little bit, but all the way. Not just up to a point, but all in with Jesus. So spend time with Jesus. Lots of it. Want more. Get closer to Jesus. And then finally... To be all in with Jesus, get in the game. And by that, I mean serve others in some way. It's how we grow. It's how we change. All my spiritual growth came from serving others in some way. 
You know, the, the, the disciples' request here is enormously selfish, right? Give it, we want you to do, Jesus, whatever we ask you to do for us. But he doesn't, it's interesting, he doesn't respond. He doesn't say, you terrible disciples, you bad disciples, how can you not get it? You've been with me three years. He doesn't do that. Instead, he says, I, how about I make you servants, like I'm a servant? Because if you serve others in my name, you will change the world, You won't just sit on my right and my left. You will change the world. And that's what those early Christians did. The early Christians, they cared for the sick. They cared for the poor. They were unafraid of death. And people started becoming Christians. And the movement grew 40% per decade for 300 years because of how the Christians radically loved, followed Jesus, and radically loved and served others. And they transformed the Roman Empire. Pretty soon, gladiator games weren't popular anymore because people, so many people became Christians and their hearts were changed. The poor had been empowered. The disciples got so much more than this little thing that they asked for. They changed the world because they became servants. And through the Holy Spirit, we can do that too. And that's going to look different for all of us. What getting in the game looks like for all of us is going to be different. Maybe if you've got health problems or you're homebound, maybe for you, getting in the game is becoming that prayer warrior that prays for this church and prays for the people in your life and prays for, for, for ministries of this church. For others, maybe it means joining a ministry of this church to, to children or under-resourced people in the community. Maybe it means to partner with Jesus to make your, your, your school or your workplace or your retirement home a more just and equitable place for others. Maybe it means taking time out of a busy schedule to listen to someone at work or where you live in their pain and, and kind of pastor them and comfort them and meet them in that. Maybe it means befriending someone who's lonely at school or work or, or, or where you live. But when we, and when we get in that game, it's harder. It will cost us something. It will take something out of us. But we get a bigger, richer, deeper life. There's a man in my church named Fred who was a teacher. And Fred was really close to retirement. And he started to pray, Jesus, show me who I could serve. And the reason he started to pray that is he didn't want to serve anyone. But he sort of felt like, well, I could at least maybe pray. Who can I serve? And after praying this for a while, Fred met a student named Sergio, who along with his family were immigrants from Mexico. And Sergio didn't speak English very well. And he and his parents were very, very poor, didn't have a lot of money. And the Holy Spirit just kept drawing Fred's attention to Sergio. And so one day he just started a conversation with Sergio about his life. And one of the things Sergio said was that he never went out with his friends, that he would study all night long because he wanted to go to college and become a teacher, just like Fred was a teacher. And so Fred heard that and decided that he would help Sergio. So he helped him find a volunteer role with five and six-year-olds in kindergarten. And they were all, all those five and six-year-olds were also from Mexico, also didn't speak English very well. So Sergio could kind of help them. And all these little guys just looked up to Sergio because he wanted to go to college and he wanted to become a teacher and they wanted something like that. The problem was Sergio didn't have nearly enough money to go to college, not nearly enough. So Fred started a fund and he went and he started talking to a lot of people, lots and lots and lots of people. And over the course of about two years was able to get enough money to pay for all of Sergio's education by talking to all these people and getting donations. And Fred would also meet with Sergio almost every week to, to, to talk to him, to help him with his English, help him fill out college applications, help him understand American culture, 
give him good advice on how to study, how to be a good friend, how to talk to women, which Sergio really appreciated. And Fred became kind of this father for Sergio because Sergio's parents were really good people, but they had to work multiple jobs just to survive financially. And so, and they also, they also didn't understand American culture, so Fred could kind of stand in that gap. And this went on for two years. And then when the time came, Fred got to be the one to drive him to the university, which was several hours away, because Sergio's parents had to work and they couldn't do it. And when it came time for Fred to say goodbye to Sergio at the dorm room, and he got in the car, and Fred said, I burst into tears. And I started sobbing, because I realized that I had really come to love Sergio, and that I was going to miss him. But what you need to know about Fred is what he told me when he told me this story. And he said, you've got to understand, Scott, that before I met Sergio, I was a mean person. I was grouchy. I had no compassion. I didn't want to help anyone. And Sergio opened up my heart. And he said, this has also made my faith just in Jesus just come alive because I didn't think we could ever raise enough money to send Sergio to college. But I just saw God come through over and over again in so many amazing and miraculous ways. And I, my, my heart is bigger. My faith is bigger. Two years ago, I was bored and mean and grouchy, and I felt like something was missing. And now my life is full and rich and meaningful, and I've got this wonderful young man that's part of my life. Fred served Sergio. But not just Sergio. Because, you see, because of Fred and getting him to college, Sergio's kids are not going to be born into poverty the same way he was. So Fred didn't just help Sergio, he helped generations of people to come that won't be born into poverty. And then, of course, Sergio served Fred and transformed him. And Fred went from bored and mean and stingy to having this big adventure in his life and a bigger heart and a bigger life. And it cost him something, time, energy, money, emotional resources. It was harder, but a much bigger life because Fred got in the game and became an all-in follower of Jesus. Not just attending church once in a while, but an all-in follower of Jesus. And Menlo Church, that is what you did for me. That is what you did for me. You got in the game, and then you encouraged me to get in the game. When I arrived here, I'd been to seminary, but decided I never wanted to be a pastor, gave all my seminary books away, all of that, switched careers, and came to Stanford to get a PhD in English literature because I was going to be a professor. And at the time, I was in the middle of a painful, painful divorce. And some of you, well, most of you don't know me, but some of you will remember that. I was a mess when I came here. In fact, the very first time I set foot on this campus here in Menlo Park was at midnight to find a phone booth to call my ex-wife. And back when there were phone booths, you know, before cell phones. So it was a long time ago. And that was how I first found out about this church. And then I started coming here sporadically. I would come late and leave early so I didn't have to talk to anyone. And I kind of did that for two years. And then one summer, I was up in Seattle teaching at a university there just for the summer. And I went to a party. I was invited to a party and I went to a party. And I met a Stanford grad, and when he found out that I was at Stanford, he said, oh, oh, there's a college ministry there connected to Menlo Church, and they're looking for Bible study leaders. Maybe you should go and volunteer to be a Bible study leader. And I said, oh, I go to that church. Now, mind you, that was a generous description of my church-going habits. <laughs> I go to that church. That was very, I mean, it was more like I sort of dropped in quarterly, but, you know, whatever. 
And that stuck in my head, and I came back, and that fall, I volunteered with this church to lead a Bible study of college guys. And then the then college pastor found out I'd been to seminary and said, would you want to teach the college group once in a while as a volunteer? And I said, yeah, sure, I'll do that. So I would teach occasionally for the college group. And then she would start to say things like, I think, I think you're missing what God's got to do in your life. I think you should be a pastor. I'm like, no, no, I want to be a professor. And she would be patient with me, but then she just got more earnest. And eventually she started saying things like, you are, you are in direct defiance of the sovereign will of the all-holy God, not going into ministry. That was her way of encouraging me to get in the game. A few years later, she left. And then this church asked if I would be the college pastor. I said, no. And then this church asked again if I would be the college pastor. I said, I'll be your interim. I'll do it for a year. I did it for five. And, and I was never supposed to preach here ever. That was never going to be the deal. But then one week, the preaching pastor had to cancel at the last minute. And so the, the, the senior pastor at that time, Walt Gerber, asked if I would preach that weekend. It was, a, it was a weekend, you know, late in August when a lot of people are gone on vacation. So I think he figured I couldn't do too much damage. You know, kind of like this weekend is. Like... <laughs> What's that about, Mark? I like, whatever, okay. Yeah. And so I, I preached, and after I did the first service, he took me to this room over here, and he put his hand on my shoulder, and he said, that was great. Here are three things that would make that sermon better. And he gave me the three things, and then he put his hand on my shoulder again, and he said, the Spirit of God is on you. Preach. And he walked out of the room, and it was something about the way he said it. I thought to myself, I will follow him anywhere. And, 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 and so I stayed here for five years as the college pastor, a little bit as the teaching pastor. And in the, my years here, first is just someone going to church here in the pews, and then later as a volunteer, and then later on staff, I healed from that divorce. I met the woman I'm married to now. And as I said in the video, I met people like Bill and Sally Russ who taught me to hear the voice of God. And John Jenks, World War II vet, he would take me to breakfast every Saturday, mentor me, disciple me, and he would say every time, every sermon, you've got to mention Jesus. And every sermon, I have never preached a sermon where I've never mentioned Jesus because of John Jenks. And, and, and eventually I, I, I went, and Walt Gerber, who was the first person to notice leadership gifts in me, I didn't think I had. Eventually I went to my church in Seattle, and my church has done great things through God's power. You know, we built a center for under-resourced people that has this great track record of getting kids out of gangs, off drugs, and into college, all in the name of Jesus. We built a center for street kids in Rwanda that's given over 1,000 street kids job skills, gotten them off the streets into good jobs, and most of them become Christian along the way. Now, I didn't do all that. God did that, and the people in my church did that, but I got to lead it. Street kids did not die because of how God worked through the people in my church up in Seattle, but before my church up in Seattle was my church here in Menlo Park, who took a mess like me and changed my life. And when we are all in heaven, some of those street kids are going to hunt some of you down, and they're going to say, thank you. I did not die because you took a mess like Scott Dudley and healed him. In Jesus' name, thank you. All of that happened because I went to a party where someone encouraged me to get in the game and lead a Bible study. I go to one party and poof, I'm a pastor. <laughs> now, <laughs> now, 
And I am so grateful. I am so grateful because it has been a much harder life than the one I planned for myself. Way harder, but so much bigger. So Menlo Church, thank you. You got in the game, and you encouraged me to get in the game, and it changed everything. It changed everything. And I know you're looking for a new senior pastor, and that can actually be an awesome time for a church. Awesome time where God moves. So please, and I'm not a candidate, as Mark said, but it can be an awesome time for a church. And in this time, remember, Menlo, who you are and whose you are. You are the church where everybody is welcome and nobody is perfect and all things are possible. And God's hand has been on this church for almost 150 years, setting people free of addictions and fears and heartache and introducing people to Jesus and preaching the gospel and healing injustice in the Bay Area and around the world. And that kind of DNA survives all kinds of transitions. For almost 150 years, God has used this church to change lives, and I am one of those people. And his hand is on you still. And he is guiding you still, and he will guide you to a new pastor and new chapters and new adventures and new generations of people who will be transformed in the name of Jesus because you're in the game. And, and those of you who are in the game, thank you, man. Thank you. And stay in the game and keep doing it because it makes a difference. And sometimes it makes a difference you don't even see or know. And if you don't feel like you're in the game, well, ask Jesus to show you where he wants you in the game. And, 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 and follow his lead so that you can have that bigger, deeper, richer life that he wants to give us. I'll close with this. During one of the best basketball games ever, uh, Michael Jordan ever had, he ended up scoring 69 points just in one game. And after the game, a reporter interviewed one of Jordan's teammates, named, a rookie named Stacy King, and King had managed to score two points that night. And the reporter said, well, how does it feel to score only two points when Michael Jordan scored 69 points? And, and King said, oh, it feels great. I will always remember this game as the night that Michael Jordan and I combined for 71 points. <laughs> when we get in the game with Jesus, we combine with him to change the world. And there is nothing more dangerous to the devil's plans than a man or woman who is fully yielded to Jesus. And there is nothing the devil fears more than a church of all-in followers who are all-in following Jesus. Because when we, through the power of the Holy Spirit, become as brave and as joy-filled and as loving and as servant-hearted as those early Christians who changed the world, we become dangerous to the devil's plans. When we follow Jesus with everything we've got and experiencing his transforming love, we awaken to our true calling to launch a movement that changes cities and states and regions and nations and the world as inch by inch, block by block, town by town, school by school, home by home, office by office, person by person, minute by minute, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we renew, restore, revive, redeem, repair what the devil has broken. And we keep doing that until every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and until the earth is filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. And all God's people said... Amen. So, Jesus, there's no one like you. And Lord, true joy is found only in you. We know that and then we forget that. So Lord, I ask that you would help us follow you with everything we've got. 
all in for you, not just up to a point. Show us where you want us to be servants. Lead us in, in your way to that bigger, richer, deeper life that you promise. And Lord, help us to always do that closely connected with you. Jesus, there is no one like you. Help us be people that live in a way that prove to the world that you are Lord. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.